Welcome to Living Social Justice Podcast, an initiative of Common Ground Church and Common Good, where we explore our lifestyle response to topics of social justice. Our hope is that a growing number of Christ followers begin to individually and collectively live out justice, creating a groundswell of positive change in our society. Hi, I'm Sharon Kloppers from Common Good and going to be hosting this podcast episode. So for most of you that have been listening in, we've been, we're currently in a series of episodes um, interviewing members of our social justice ministry teams across the city. And here at Common Ground Church, each of our congregations has a group of volunteers helping their leaders to mobilize the congregation towards what we term living social justice. But that's obviously a very, very broad term. And so we want to use these episodes to dig a little deeper and tell some stories and really flesh out what does it mean to live social justice in our lives. So today I'm talking to Debbie Morn. Welcome, Debs. Hi. Debs heads up the social justice ministry team for our Seapoint congregation. But just to keep things interested, interesting, we've decided that today we're going to bring in Debs' two siblings who happen to be um, very interesting individuals in their own right. So we've got Karen Morn with us. Hi, Karen. Hello. And Paul Morn. Hello, hello. Um, so great to have all three of you in the room together, and um, I think this is going to provide a very um, comical and um, interesting angle on living social justice. But the first thing I have to ask the three of you is, um, what's the birth order? Who's who's first? Who's last? Who's the favourite? Tell us the deal. Um, so Karen, Karen was the original. Okay, Karen, you don't have to tell us your age, but how? But how much are you the oldest? I'm I'm gonna turn forty next year. Okay, so and go. I'm and but we were all close together because our parents met sort of later in life, so they didn't waste any time. So I'm thirty nine. Paul's gonna turn thirty eight this year, and Bud is gonna turn thirty seven next year. Yeah, next. Oh wow, year. that is incredibly close. Yeah. I'm yeah. Very close. Wow. Okay, so we have to try and give everyone a little bit of an idea of the three of you where you based, what you do, how you spend your nine to five. Maybe Karen, maybe you start and we go with the birth order. Uh, I'm a journalist. I used to be at ENCA, um, do produced for Checkpoint, but now working for Tiso Blackstar, Sunday Times, Financial Mail, all those guys do a lot of broadcast journalism, freelance for Al Jazeera and SABC. And yeah, I'm having a good time. And um, I wandered off into the chartered accounting profession for quite a few years and uh, then lectured at UCT for 12 years and I've recently transitioned to head up the um, Greenpoint Seapoint congregation so get to work closely with the SJM team that uh, Debbie Debbie heads up. Cool and I'm a physician and I'm a, so I'm a state doctor and I work at Mitchell's Plain District Hospital. It might be helpful just to go and order not just birth order but number of Twitter followers. There we so go. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ranking way at the bottom. <laughs> 89. <laughs> How many do you have, Paul? Uh, only about a thousand odd. <laughs> <laughs> I have about, I think, 310,000 followers. Just put things in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence yeah. at the Living Social Justice Podcast. <laughs> Pretty, incre- uh, pretty incredible. Okay, so to me, what's amazing in this room is that we're kind of spanning so many sectors and industries and areas of just life, and particularly in our country. So media, politics, the reality of our country, the health sector, hospitals, 
healthcare, um, all of that, and all the injustices that spring to mind around that area. We've got university, if I think of everything UCT's been through in the last few years, and then transitioning to church leadership. Um, and all of those areas for me speak to the, yeah, the massive topic of justice and injustice and what we as citizens and as people in Cape Town um, and particularly as Christ followers are, are called to do in terms of responding. Um, but I'd love to just dig a little deeper. Like all three of you are in some way fighting injustice or facing injustice and trying to make a difference. What, what's the why? What, what started that? What birthed that? What, um, what kind of grew the momentum to make you go, no man, I need to, I need to make a change. I need to actually take a stand. Debbie's going to start. <laughs> I think mine one's kind of the more obvious one, though. Um, so, yeah, I think <clears throat> the one area of my life that God has spoken the clearest to cons- to me consistently has been my my work. And really, I know it sounds incredibly cheesy, but just like this calling that this, this is what I was going to do. Um, I can remember being in standard seven at school and apart from having a fascination with the human body and an interest in how the body worked no real major desire to be a doctor and uh, the university came to do a presentation on like what subjects you had to choose and to in order to do the different subjects and I distinctly remember like when there was a presentation on medicine just the sense of that's what you're going to do and um yeah, consistently throughout my my walk career-wise, God has been very um, clear, and I think He's also given me a very clear sense of justice and and how that applies to healthcare, and just a really strong conviction that just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't get quality care, and that's um, that's kind of been the driving force for me uh, in what I do. And then I think more recently, um, now that I find myself kind of in a higher position. Um, really a conviction to protect doctors and particularly the ones that are more vulnerable, um, the junior training doctors from a system that can at times be a little bit toxic. So in that sense, still a passion to provide care, but protecting the people that provide the care to the patients. Um, we never answered the question of who's the favorite, um, but Debbie, Debbie is the favorite. And, uh, <laughs> One of the very interesting dynamics was her desire to study medicine, but um, she was young for her grade. So she was sort of hanging out with a bunch of people a year older than her. And um, it took a lot of extra math lessons, took a lot of extra effort, and also took us kind of by surprise the degree to which that kind of call of God on life had motivated her to achieve above what we actually expected. You know, And to get into medicine required many hours of knocking on the door, initially being rejected, and the door kind of opening up during O-Week. Um, and so it's just an incredible story of persistence and kind of put your head down and trust God in her life. As you look at where she's at now as a sort of specialized doctor, there were times where we both, well, as a family, sort of sat and went, jeez, uh, I don't know what Deb's going to do with, with this door closing. And um, just seeing God's faithfulness throughout all the years that she's found herself where she is today. Um, and let that be an encouragement to those of you that feel similarly called, but the doors might appear closed, that persistence um, kind of, God honors. And myself, uh, yeah, I think um, this thing of justice being a big thing in our family. And, you know, I think of our parents, um, mom kind of modeled this unconditional love. And then my dad was always kind of like, okay, I need to be the other 
voice of reason in this setup. Yeah, otherwise these kids are going to be the most inflated uh, egos around. Rampant narcissists. Yeah. <laughs> and so my dad was always on the lookout for kind of like um, opportunities to to make sure that we were just aware that there were others in the world, you know, and um, and uh, and that we needed to make the most of what we were given. And um, yeah, I, I think we appreciate without realizing that the closeness of all of us meant that we were always talking about things and kind of holding each other almost accountable via those dinner time chats. And um, yeah, for myself, I I did the accounting thing a little bit out of process of elimination. I didn't like blood. Um, <laughs> you know, one of those ones, Karen had journalism covered. So you end up kind of going, I'll do the commerce thing. But in that process, kind of really fell in love with education and teaching others. And although I'm transitioning out of academia, I still see that as a major call of trying to help people understand things better. And in that, equip people for work and, and employment like I, I really am passionate about wanting to see entrepreneurship job creation in, in our country i think it's weird because um the teaching thing is consistent amongst all of us and i think that all of us in our different fields like we try and mentor and grow people and i think both of my siblings inspire me in terms of consistent identity that you are consistent in how you live how you treat other people and that absolute belief, that core belief that everyone is important and everyone has potential. And Debbie, I mean, both Paul and Debbie, but I see that with Debbie hugely. I mean, she imparts not just in terms of the patients that she has, but the junior doctors and how she actively feeds and enables people to be excellent. And I think that's one of the things that society will tell you is that you know, in order to be an achiever, you have to step on the heads of others. And that is completely against what God wants for us. But it's also completely against the human project of happiness. Because when, you know, you are not threatened when you enable someone to be better than you are. That is real legacy. That is real success in God's eyes. You know, and I think I've seen that consistently in the lives of my siblings. Um, I think, you know, one of my colleagues once said to me, we were having this gathering and he said, how many of you were bullied at school? And all of us put our hands up. And I think that was a big driver for me as a journalist was that sense of I don't want to see people being trampled by the system, whatever that system may be. But I also know that there's always been godly purpose in what I've done. And consistently I'm amazed by how he just opens doors and things that people are like, how the hell did you get that story? And I'm like, more <laughs> demo. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so Paul mentioned something about mom and dad. Um, but it's also, it's fascinating that in such different spheres, there's there's something more of like a deep conviction around justice it's more than just oh, i want to contribute or i can make a difference which a lot of people irrespective of their faith would 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 relate to but i think there's more in the three of you of like a faith conviction of actually what was meant to be what ought to be is not how it is and the system needs to change it's more than just i can make a contribution as an individual but actually there's a there's a system that needs to be, that is wrong, that needs to be righted. Um, just talk to us about that. What does that look like in different, in different angles? Or how have you viewed that in your sector, in you know, politics and journalism versus medicine versus education? Um, what are the systems? What are the glaring injustices that for you have, have seemed like, well, that thing's got to come down? 
Yeah, I think um, the the thing for me has been twofold. I think I kind of spoke to it, but the inequality in it plays itself in our country is a huge, the hugest problem I think our country faces, and it plays itself out massively within the healthcare system, and it's so um, it's so obvious and it's so opposite as to what God would want. So the dignity of human beings, the inherent worth of human beings. Um, you know, when you walk into a hospital emergency center and you see that there's not enough space for people and people are lying on the floor, it's just you know in your heart, you don't necessarily have to even know God to know that that's not right. But I think when you know God and you have a little bit of his heart, that that can really just <clears throat> break you a little bit, but also just drive you to say this is not right and let's work together to make that better. So I think I have that I think he's given me that perspective of his heart and that's just the inherent value of people, um, irrespective of, um, you know, their actual, their actual, yeah, monetary, you know, capacity, capacity, sorry. Um, And then increasingly just seeing how the toll of that and being on the front line of that and being a healthcare provider in that space is so damaging to people because it's, you know, when you are on the front line, you're representing the system that's failing. And you know that this isn't right, and you're trying your best. But one individual within that space can't necessarily change the entire system. Mm-hmm. So I think <coughs> the perspective is one of knowing that to change the system, we're all going to have to do it together, and it's going to have to be a bottom-up kind of revolution. Um, but... Yeah, also just a strong sense of protection and realizing that we need to get people talking about it because it's not a culture where we speak and we acknowledge. It's a culture of only the strong survive and if you can't deal with this, then are you are you a strong person, um, which is, uh, I think, rubbish. I think, um, you know, this country, we talk a lot about privilege and I, and I think we're very privileged as a family to have the stability of parents married for so many years who, who like I said, a mother who uh, believes we are incredible individuals and the stability that that gives you means that when you go in a context, you don't just see the problem, but you think you can do it. You know, you've got this confidence. You're like, no, my mom tells me I'm great. Like, <laughs> I got this, you know, and I think that is quite unique and something we mustn't discount in all of this and that like we knew even if we'd failed in this thing, we had a support network that would stand around us and that would allow us to succeed. And, um, and so I, I, that, that was a big factor. And, and then the secondly, I think um, there comes a moment yeah, of when you notice things and there's that injustice and equality that you say like, well, no one else is stepping forward and let's go, you know? So you don't, you know, maybe you're sitting there looking at a situation and you're thinking, well, someone must do something about this. And I think just, so, I don't know how that happened, but each and every one of us just, put our hands up generally and just go well we'll try and um and then there's been a momentum off that, that that's allowed us to change and and um and you know when you go back home there's going to be a mama who's going to still make you coffee and say you're amazing baby <laughs> no, matter, no matter how spectacularly you i enjoyed that this morning actually <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so that privilege it really does and i think it, it's a message to all of us who have that support base in this country to say that is actually incredibly unique and use it as a as an opportunity to spend yourself for others and in in your best intentions even if it fails you've you've got a you've got a god who loves you and you've got a support network that can get around you so use that privilege i think the thing that i've i mean my sister 
deals with this stuff every single day, you know, in the face of it. Um, and to some degree, you know, I, I do too, but not to the same intensity as she has. But the one thing that I've just been is continuously humbled because you go in, it's very, very dangerous to have a white savior complex because you think, oh, now, and there's an innate sense of superiority to that, mm -hmm. that I am better than these people and I'm going to come in there with all my knowledge and understanding. I'm going to make their life better. And that's completely not what God calls us to do. Mm -hmm. But it's also a dangerous assumption and you will, you will get humbled very quickly because my experience has been um, that the kind of kindness that I've confronted, the graciousness, the, the resilience, the courage. It takes massive courage to be poor. Mm. It takes massive courage to live in circumstances where you don't have guaranteed water. You're living in Mpumalanga and you have to go every day and fetch it from a Jojo tank. To know what it's like to literally like a power outage sends like the whole of White Joburg into apoplectic fits of hysteria. But that's the lived reality for many, many black South Africans. And it takes courage to deal with that. It takes courage to get up at four o'clock in the morning and wait in a hospital queue for your ARVs mm -hmm. for an entire day and not even be guaranteed that you're going to get that. Mm -hmm. That is something that like in spaces of privilege is horrifying to us. And that's why my experience has been just to be humbled and to just think this is not good enough. This is not... This is not right, but also I have learned from those experiences and those engagements that I don't necessarily come there with the best understanding of how to solve those problems. And one of the biggest things for us who are privileged is to actually just sit down and listen to people mm. and be involved in their lives and to actively go and be involved in those communities, not because we think we're going to be the messianic figure of hope, but because we understand that uplifting and enabling them and supporting them and loving them as God calls us to love is the only way that things are going to change mm. and it will be a gift to ourselves mm. more than it is oftentimes a gift to those communities absolutely so off the, off the back of that just to um, one of the things we're trying to do as, as common good is is grapple with what is the role of the church in our nation and in the, the space of Injustice and exactly what you're saying, Karen, is it's not that there's this project or this campaign that if we just do that thing, that's going to change things. It's actually each and every individual responding to Christ, seeing who God is for, for who his word says that he is, and then actually, like you say, just humbly engaging, humbly listening, and trying to figure out what is God whispering to me? What is God leading me into um, that, that, that will be meaningful? And the reality that actually, if every Christ follower does that, the groundswell that that creates and the momentum that that creates. Um, so I'd love to explore that a little bit more in terms of what is the role of the church. Um, and even um, from the perspective of journalism and politics, I think um, if you look at church history and you look at the history of our, of our country, the church much bigger than one local church, but the church at large has had a voice and has had a role to play in our nation's past and in the systems at large. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what is the role of the church, but also how can we help our church um, really just 
make sure that our eyes are wide open, that we're seeing things for, for what they are, that we are engaging and actively listening and responding, and that it's not just a Sunday thing of, oh, and to appease my conscience, I better give to something or to someone, but actually, how do I, with my whole person, engage? Uh, so this is obviously a question now that I've transitioned from UCT to um, be in uh, leadership with the team of guys of a church. It's something I'm really grappling with. And I think the one comment would be that I would probably say that um, there's a tendency to maybe say, what's the church doing about, uh, doing about um, you know, uh, land, uh, the land issues that we're facing? What, what is the church doing about unemployment? And um, I hear that, but I would also say, what are Christ followers doing about it? Because there's frontiers which I will never get to as a pastor and um, and that you're right at the edge of. And you have got a deep understanding of what's happening on that edge. You know the giants that need to get slayed. You know the um, networks that are forming and that have huge potential for, for impact. And so I would say that a big role of the church leadership is to strengthen uh, people like Debbie, who's at the front line of a hospital that I'll never be at, but that might need some perspective, some wisdom, some prayer, and some equipping to help her network with a bunch of other doctors and think of a way in which they can eradicate that inequality that's happening. So I would say um, to anyone listening that they're on the edge of something that I as a pastor can't get to, and I'd love to strengthen them in that way. And part of it is to sort of have that conversation and to start networking with others on that frontier. And um, I really am full of hope that that will um, lead to some incredible uh, God-honoring solutions that 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 can move this nation forward. You know, then as a church body, what we have to keep doing is opening up God's Word and seeing that justice is something that God desires. It isn't an optional extra. It's it's what it means to follow um, Him. And then I think fires get lit, and people then aren't just going, "Okay, I need to do something." It's actually like I want to do something, and I, I really hope that we as a church leadership can get that right. That justice is stops being, you know, for the the extra spiritual and it starts being something that all Christ followers give themselves to and I also just think on that note like it's very you know people can look at the, do- at, the at healthcare and go that's a very obvious outworking of justice in, in, in your in your space and your influence and I think people can struggle with a sense of you know from their nine to five in an administrative role or something what's the purpose you know how does that play out and I'm just strongly convicted that, you know, everyone, God places everyone. That's the, what, you know, the Bible says, that we, God places us where we're at. And there's purpose that even with the person that's sitting in the cubicle next to you. So just for, again, for people that are listening that don't necessarily have this, or don't necessarily feel a very strong vocational call, just to be aware that God has wired them specifically to be in the city at this time and to have the friends and the influences that they have for specific reasons, for his reasons. Mm. And to prayerfully pray into that and, and to think about that. And then also just, you know, particularly for, for those of us that have a privileged background, just to take the opportunity to listen to people, to actively listen to issues, not to e- immediately react with your, you know, preconceived ideas. Um, and to to learn about the history of the country, to relearn about the history of the country. Mm-hmm. That, you know, th- there's a version of, that, of it that we know, um, but it's way more complex and complicated and it's so important to understand to really 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 understand um what other people have suffered what other people have endured and yeah to seek that like reconciliation and i think that's the season of uh, the country that we're facing and 
I think that has to that has to start, as my sister said, with a, a sense of humility mm. to actively listen to people. Des, while you've got the mic, mm. won't you just let people in on what's been happening specifically in Seapoint? So. Mm. In terms of social justice ministry, we often talk about what would success look like, and we say, okay, well, success would look like congregants being discipled in their personal lives of what living social justice would look like for them. It looks like the neighborhood around your local church being um, responsive to the things um, in the area, and it looks like the church being mobilized towards our triple E strategy of common good, education, early life, employment, actually getting people getting their hands, being willing to get their hands dirty and get into spaces that need um, vo volunteers and, and help. What's happening in the Seapoint congregation and area specifically? So a key focus, I think, as a congregation, and that played itself out within the SJM um, sphere too, was one of discipleship. So um, as a congregation, we did a great course called Foundations for Justice, um, which was a course that looked at what is social justice and how that plays itself out in our own lives, God's call to justice and how, how we can practically mm -hmm. play that out, which I think was, it had a profoundly good impact and um, you could see kind of the lights going on in people's brains as to exactly what I said about, you know, your nine to five isn't random, it's not a mistake, it's not just how you kind of get income so that you can um, survive, it's really God God's hand on, on us as individuals. Um, so yeah from that kind of space that was kind of the key discipleship um, area um, and again from that just really needing to equip people to understand uh, what is it that they could potentially get involved of involved in and um, C points kind of unique um, unique uh, identity with quite a few homeless um, homeless individuals that are attend our, our church um, and really feeling a sense of these kind of questions that are difficult to answer, like how to include people. Um, and that's kind of naturally happened. Um, people coming and attending small groups, um, doing DNA courses. It's kind of uncharted territory for common ground as a, as a church as a whole. Um, but we, we're kind of navigating that as best we can. But also just, a, you know, p again for people of privilege realizing okay well actually how does a homeless shelter work mm -hmm. things that maybe people have never really grappled with um just that idea of actually maybe you know just giving money and walking away is not helpful to this individual what is helpful um which is you know investing in that person and um building relationship with that person which is a far more costly um thing mm -hmm. to do and i've seen that naturally happen within the church and it's such an amazing thing um, it's uncomfortable at times. Um, it's not easy, but it is so amazing. And it's God's heart, you know, that we all come to him exactly the same. It's an amazing picture when we stand and worship all together in front of God, no matter what clothes you're wearing, no matter how you come, like from an external perspective, in front of God, we're exactly the same yeah. um, spiritually. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the space that we're in. We have amazing people that you've spoken to on this podcast already. Um, Ange Bain with her work with Source. Um, Carolyn Clark has done a, a podcast with you on homelessness. People should listen to if they haven't. Um, yeah, so I think Phil, uh, uh, there's there's those things happening and then we're linking very much strongly um, with the employment theme with Greenpoint, uh, with paradigm shift and um, realizing and with the work of um, TZN and mm. And that so to call people into a space of employment and dignity within that amazing i'm just so inspired just hearing 
the three of you, your lives, just reminded of the the power of individuals actually living out intentionally in their spaces and in the, as you were saying earlier, Karen, just like the, the doors opening in your work and actually just being present there and like recognizing God's opening these doors and I'm going to walk through them. If there was one thing, if you know that you talking to an audience of Christ followers, um, people that want to make the little tweaks, the little changes to their day-to-day lives, like what would be the one thing that you'd encourage individuals to do? I think the overwhelming thing for me is to remember that we have this sometimes have this perverse attitude that life is so tough and you know people feel like oh I'm white and I'm privileged but I'm so bad it's so terrible how you know I'm always been made to feel guilty about it you know what you aren't fighting a war you aren't sending your 19 year old son to the front lines you aren't having to deal with past laws and and all kinds of other stuff we in our society are probably the most comfortable that we've ever been and that is the greatest enemy that we face is the comfort you cannot be comfortable in a society like south africa so embrace that discomfort c.s lewis and my brother always refers me to him said about friendship that fr- friendship is about sharing the same truth And I think that was one of the, it's like looking at someone and saying, you too, I thought I was the only one. And if we are going to have genuine friendships with people who don't come from, from like privileged backgrounds, who don't share, we, we need to expand our truth. We need to be humbled, like my sister said, and actually realize that the way we understand our world is very subjective, very shaped by our own privilege. I mean, I've had amazing experience that God had put me through, um, which have really just challenged my understanding, like my understanding of how I see the world. And I think that's been the most positive thing, is just to realize that uh, we come from a very definitive experience of life and an understanding life that is inevitably shaped by the fact that we grew up in the suburbs. We always had flushing toilets, always had electricity, got educated, had all these opportunities. And part of dealing with that is to actually take ourselves into realities that are not the ones that we know um, and humble ourselves in those situations and be f- be friends, have relationship and have our truth expanded because once your truth is expanded and you see your privilege, you understand the way in which you have been benefited through whether it was a systemic racism of apartheid and the continued kind of structural inequality that exists, you cannot unsee that. And you also can't be passive about it anymore. Once you see it, you have to do something. Um, I remember being challenged uh, over a decade ago around um, the fact that common ground really at that time and probably still in in many contexts isn't a reflection of South Africa's diversity. We're here in Cape Town, but yet we don't always reflect the people that live in the city. And the challenge was... Um, put to us that well the church looks like this because your life looks like this <laughs> and just the sort of audit of what is your what is your who was on your 21st invite list and who was at your 30th and who went, came to your wedding and um still feeling that challenge in my heart that it starts at a very simple friendship level of who am I including around my dinner table who do I gravitate towards in, when I'm in a room or when I'm in a context that's unfamiliar do I go to the faces that I could quickly identify with or do I actually become Christ-like and extend myself for those who um, are different to me, you know, uh, uh, that line of um, uh, of Jesus just always throughout the Gospels, just meeting with people whose society wouldn't have fancied, you know, um, and in our country, Christ, I think, would be the one who would be moving towards 
all kinds of different people and mm-hmm. let's be like him let's invite people and let's create friendships and i think from then onwards a lot more can can transpire and i also just think that thing of using privilege um so i think maybe what m- my siblings and i uh reflect in a way is that in that gap between where things ought to be mm-hmm. and where things are we've been called to stand in the gap mm-hmm. and i think god calls us all to stand in the gap and to point out there's a gap sometimes we we're able to advance and narrow it sometimes it's just to say this is not right this is not right this is not right and um <clears throat> in that space it's speaking truth to power irrespective of consequences to your own kind of self which again is a countercultural. um but it's also yeah speaking up for for people that are vulnerable in any way so um obviously the poor but also people that as my brother said i think um at one meeting that aren't at the table where the decisions getting made that's going to impact them S- small things in a business meeting mm. think about the other think about how it's going to impact other mm. people and speak up for them mm. i think that's how we can use our privilege so thank you so much all three of you for giving up valuable time so inspired by your stories and your family history um strength to you in your Um, different industries and sectors and challenges ahead and if you're listening in please subscribe to the channel and listen into the other episodes in the series and we'd love your feedback as we plan for the future series if you've enjoyed this episode subscribe to our channel living social justice on apple podcast and soundcloud you can also find more resources on our website commongood.org.za including our justice journey courses, devotional content and volunteer opportunities. Bye for now.